I'm Kathleen Blee. I'm a sociologist at the University of Pittsburgh. Extremely is a podcast for anyone who wants to understand and interrupt modern hate and extremism. Hosted by Oren Siegel and brought to you by ADL and American University. These conversations feature expert analysis and fresh perspectives on this global threat and what it might take to stop it in its tracks. I hear people saying it's never been like this. So as somebody who's actually looked back at the history of, of white supremacists in this country, you know, what can you sort of say in terms of the way it was back then and, and what we're seeing now? Well, I guess I have the uh, sad take that it has been like this. Uh, the 1920s, the Ku Klux Klan in the United States was uh, enormous. Um, the estimates are around three to five million people. That's a lot of people. The population of the United States was much smaller. And to be in the Klan, you had to be white. You had to be uh, Christian, non-Catholic. And you had to be native-born, born in this country, which excluded a lot of e- even uh, white Christians. So that clan, you know, was a scary phenomena. It was a clan of Main Street, uh, a clan um, of kind of ordinary people. Uh, it was mm. it was hidden. It had all the same ideologies we see in white supremacism today, but it was very much a uh, mainstream. Uh, politics. That's a very scary place to be. And of course, I worry we're moving you know, in, in that direction now. What do you see that gives you that level of worry? So after the 1920s Klan collapsed, really up until maybe the election of Obama, white supremacists in the United States became quite a marginal phenomenon. It it doesn't mean it wasn't there. Of course, it was there. It doesn't mean it wasn't violent and had um, terrible effects. It it did um, engage in a lot of violence in a lot of places. But its access to the mainstream and and its connection to mainstream electoral politics became quite thin. Uh, There were some white supremacists ran from office here and there. Sometimes they got elected. Mostly they didn't. But mostly it was seen as by most people as um, extremist philosophy, um, as something that wasn't really part of the the discourse of of the country. That has changed in some pretty scary way. And some now we see the dehumanizing and exclusionary rhetoric of white supremacism showing up in electoral politics and showing up in the speeches of mainstream um, political leaders. So we're seeing that overlap of, um, you know, general politics and white supremacist politics. That's a very uh, troubling phenomenon. And I think when most people hear that, they want to know what are the conditions that enabled that to to occur what's what's enabled it to for lack of a better term make make this comeback so my view is that white supremacism as a as a political phenomena is always very opportunistic so it, it doesn't have a, 
a clear strategy. You know, we're going to be part of the government. We're not going to be part of the government. It's like that. Um, it, it moves in ways when where it can take advantage of political situations. And in the 1920s and today, it moved in a way to take advantage of electoral politics to, um, in both cases, it fused or started to overlap with electoral politics that was based on nativism and nationalism and racial division. When electoral politics starts having those characteristics as defining, that's just an opportunity for white supremacist organizations and leaders and members and ideas and memes um, to penetrate right into the heart of American politics. Now, I, we're not in the 1920s. It, it, it hasn't taken over in the way that it did in the 20s, but we're still in a, a much scarier um, overlap of extremism and mainstream politics than uh, I've seen in my lifetime. You focused um, a good amount of, of your, your research on women in the movement. And can you talk a bit about how moving to the virtual world, I mean, has that had a different impact on women in the movement than it does sort of the movement overall? One thing that seems clear is that there's a pretty substantial overlap between the virtual worlds of white supremacists and adjacent virtual worlds that are highly misogynist. So uh, the highly misogynist part of the gaming community and cells and so forth. Um, so to some extent, the shift to the virtual, you would think would bring more women in and make it more gender inclusive. I, I think for at least in the short run, it's having the opposite effect, which is that the place for women in that, world by which i mean can women see themselves as part of that virtual community of dedicated white supremacists you know willing to you know commit to supporting violence to achieve white supremacist goals can women see themselves in that world not as easily as they probably could have before it was virtual uh, so i think there's been somewhat of a closing or somewhat of a more exclusion of women right now hmm. but this is a quick changing phenomenon and and that could turn around there are of course a number of women who are associated with white supremacism both in its in-person uh, uh, forms and in its virtual forms so i don't mean women are absent but is it attracting women anywhere near the rate you would think i suspect not right now um but you know th things can change very quickly um in, in virtual communities yeah i mean even when we've seen gatherings of of white supremacists which is not that common um you know whether it's flash demonstrations or organized rallies or even you know the the meetings that they have and then um you know post videos on telegram or what have you I mean, you still see very few women there. Um, right. Yes, I think that's right. And it's interesting what you're saying is that women are not visible at rallies, which I agree is the case. But if you look back, you know, tw 20 years, 
10 years, even when white supremacism was more of an in-person phenomena. You would also often see mostly men at demonstrations, but the groups that were meeting in person, one of the things I found is that there were a lot of women in those groups, but they just weren't in public very often. They were in public in strategic places and moments, but not all the time. But more interestingly, it wasn't just that there were women in those groups, but that women were actually acting as critical leaders holding a lot of those groups together. They, mm. they were the recruiters. They were actually the ones who were organizing the strategy, surprisingly enough. Um, so they, they never had the titles of leadership. So they look, they were invisible. They never had positions of official leadership, but they had the leadership functions. I don't think that's what's going on today. I, I think women are more excluded from both the titled leadership and the functional leadership in white supremacists. Uh, now, I'm speaking very broadly. Obviously, yeah. there are exceptions. So, what what was the 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 path that led you to saying, "Yeah, I want to get deep into studying white supremacy." So actually, this was a, quite a while ago, I completely by accident ran across a pamphlet in the New York Public Library that was published by the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s in favor of women's suffrage. <laughs> and it, it just shocked me. Um, so I followed that up and started reading about it. And then I found that there had been a women's clan. Um, and historians had nodded to that, but nobody had ever studied it because they thought it was just an auxiliary and it, it had no meaning. Um, but it was long enough ago that some of those women were still alive. I tracked them down um, in the state of Indiana. The Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s was largely a northern phenomenon. And interviewed people, interviewed women who had been in the Klan and I became very interested in um, how an organization could take a ideology like women's suffrage and use it for racist and anti-Semitic and exclusionary um, uh, political ends. So I did work on the 20s. I gave talks on it and people you know, thought that was interesting history, but they really wanted to know what was going on now. Hmm. So you just found a pamphlet in the New York Public Library? I mean, I know, is that strange? Yeah, really, I was studying something completely different. So the Klan was very in favor of women's suffrage. And the Klan, the women's Klan, which was actually separate than, from the men's Klan, was uh, led by a lot of women's suffrage leaders. So these were uh, women who supported female suffrage, not out of any ideology of equality, but because they wanted white women to get the vote to counteract the vote that had earlier been given to African-American men. Uh -huh. So there's always that racist corner of, <laughs> yeah. of women's suffrage, and the Klan exploited that, and they mobilized these racist women's suffrage leaders who had a lot of political networks, great political organizing experience, um, and, you know, 
were able to bring that, you know, those that experience and that devotion to women's suffrage to, you know, a horrible, um, you know, vicious uh, politics of the Ku Klux Klan. That was a lesson that's always stuck with me, that these politics are complicated, you know, and um, that people can mobilize even what seem, you know, to be uh, good and progressive ideas in the service of really, you know, racist and anti-Semitic ends. That really is incredible. It's almost like there's no progress that can go on, unexploited <laughs> by, you know, people with nefarious purposes. I, I need to ask, because we are recording this in the middle of October, and we're we're just a couple of weeks away from the second anniversary of the Tree of Life synagogue shooting uh, in Pittsburgh. And you, you're in Pittsburgh, and you were in Pittsburgh at the time of, of this uh, attack. Can you tell uh, listeners a bit about that day? And, and I ask because, you know, this is something that you had studied for so long. And a lot of people who do this work, we read about these these awful attacks, these incidents, they're, they're sometimes in different parts of the world, different parts of the country. But when it's so intimate and so close in your community, it's a, it's a different thing. So I was, I was hoping you can share a bit about that. I guess I've studied white supremacy and violent, racial violence for more than 30 years. And I've talked about it in many, many different uh, venues. And I've studied the victims of racial violence across the country, but I have to say, I realize now I never really understood what it meant to be victimized um, by white supremacist violence until it happened, you know, in my community, in my neighborhood, to people I knew. Um, it's, it, you know, it's obviously horrific. There's almost no words to bring to that to that um you know but you know i would say looking back over two years that what happened in you know my world to people i knew was exactly the pattern that you know we've seen over and over decade after decade and you know if there's any you know positive thing i can say at all is that we now I think are really getting an understanding of how this works, how this is triggered, and that's the key to eventually stopping this. So what happened in the Tree of Life Synagogue was a pattern that's happened from the 20s till today. First, you instill fear in the person or group that's going to be the perpetrator. You identify the fear of whites losing power. You identify the enemies, and in the case of Pittsburgh uh, shooter, you know, his sense was that Central Americans directed by George Soros were pouring over the border, and then you create a sense of urgency, and in his case, it was the constant refrain of invasion. And that's a pattern that over and over ends in violence. It ends in violence by groups. It ends in violence by people like him who are erroneously called lone wolves. Mm. They 
and but he acted alone but he was not a lone wolf he was directed by a, a white supremacist community that he was avidly part of on the internet so you know it yeah, I would like that what happened in Pittsburgh, and unfortunately in many places after that, that you know we we get a stop to this. We now see how this works. We know exactly what mobilizes people to violence, and and we really need to to um, end this. I, I did read a piece that you wrote after the attack, and one of the lines in it um, that struck me was you wrote we may never fully understand the deadly hatred that provoked this attack and other hate-motivated violence across the country, yet we must try. Yeah. We may never, you know, fully understand the world of hate or what it means to hate um, a group like that, but that doesn't mean we're incapacitated um, in stopping it. And let me just say one other thing. We know that um, people's hatred can end in mass violence if they have the opportunity to buy essentially weapons of war to uh, act on their hatred. And we have the ability to make weapons of war not accessible to uh, people who are going to use them um, to act out their hate. Mm. I remember... Um, being in Pittsburgh w with with you and some other folks who are part of this consortium that we have, and you were generous enough to you know take us to the neighborhood, right, and and the site of of the the shooting at the synagogue. You know, one of the things I remember, by the way, most clearly is just what a normal neighborhood it was. <laughs> it was like completely, yeah. I mean, listen, lovely neighborhood, but unremarkable in many ways. It's just sort of a comfortable place, and to think of such horror that occurred there. But I also remember, you know, at that site um, were some stories that you told about the community's response. Those stories are very impactful. Um, can you can you sort of give us a sense of of some of those response stories that show how the community came together? Because I think those are important stories for people to hear. So S Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh, the neighborhood in which the Tree of Life synagogue was, where the shooting took place, is literally Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Mr. Rogers lived in Squirrel Hill. He lived just a few blocks away from the Tree of Life Synagogue. And people in this neighborhood, but people in Pittsburgh more broadly, take that quite literally, the idea that neighborliness is actually a very strong value in the world of Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And it really showed up, you know, after the shooting so um but but not by accident it, it's because after the shooting um people of vast numbers of faith communities came and stood with the jewish community very solidly um the muslim community not only raised a lot of uh, funds but immediately was here and said look it's a scary time for anyone to be Jewish. We will go to the grocery with you. We will stand outside your house. Mm. We will do, you know, we will protect you in any ways. Um, th that was true of many faith communities. And and that's because those connections had been made before. And it, it wasn't just a, a superficial 
coming together. It was um, the the result of of trust and connections that had preceded it. So the community, the faith communities, the stores, the the high school students in the neighborhood, um, the day of the shooting, the, and I don't mean their teachers, I mean the students themselves walked out and said, we're organizing demonstration, organized an enormous vigil that brought people together to, to cry and to pray and to remember. Um, there, there were, you know, multiple but collective um, times to, to mourn and to, to be together as a community. It was, mm. you know, it was heartbreaking and full of solace at the same time. Sometimes I feel when I, and this is obviously before a pandemic, when people could actually travel, I would go to some city for some conference or, you know, work, etc. And every city, it seems like, has their own story of extremist-related violence now. Like, yeah. it's like, you know, you, you can almost take a tour of, like, uh, the historic registry of, like, looking at historic buildings and any place. And one day I think someone's going to do the same with um, sort of, hate incidents that have shocked you know the country it'll, it'll be like the civil rights tours that we mm. we take because there's they're memorialized right and they were places of you know massacre and lynching and right so this is the new wave so i have i have i have a positive note to excellent to, to interject here so to go back to the 1920s so the Places where the Klan was strong, which was many, many parts of the country, it, it was very strong. So, you know, the vast majority, the majority and often the vast majority of all eligible persons, white, native, born, and uh, Protestant, were in the Klan. So you know, much, much more than today, right? 19, uh, around the 1930 mark, for a variety of internal and external reasons that clan collapsed overnight mm. with within a year it was gone in the entire country within a year there was almost nobody who would acknowledge having ever been in that clan now that's not good i understand <laughs> but um but i think there's an interesting lesson people disavowed it overnight so we can be in the moment we're in, and it seems almost hopeless because all we're seeing is the ascendancy of white supremacy, right? And it, it's scary, and we're seeing more of the violence, and we're seeing more of the internet penetration of white supremacy. But I also think it's important to realize that ex far extremist ideologies and violent um, movements are also very fragile. I mean, they can have incredible acceleration. Obviously, we saw that in Germany, but they also can have an incredible fragility. So that that we're seeing the ascendancy today doesn't mean that couldn't all collapse very quickly. Hmm. And people who are in that world change like they did in the 1920s from a feeling of pride and, you know, Boastful, boastfulness um, to a feeling of shame. So is that hope 
what enables you to, you know, continue to to do this work, you know, not get burnt out. Um, or maybe you do get burnt out, but you just keep going. I mean, how do you keep yourself going looking at an issue that seems to, at least now, um, be at one of the heights that it's been at? I mean, how do you keep going? I guess I think it's impossible not to work on this now. It's impossible not to confront this. It, this is there's too much at stake. Mm. The the destructive powers of white supremacism are too clear, and I'm saying that even before what happened to in my world in Pittsburgh. Um, this is just not a struggle we can step back from. This is there's everything's at stake in this struggle. And I think it's not an impossible struggle. I do think there's hope. I do think it could collapse, not incrementally, but uh, very quickly. Um, And that's what I'm committed to making happen. Hmm. What's the one thing that, or two things that you would recommend that your average person, you know, can do in order to be part of the pushback against this hatred? I think there's two things. One is I think be knowledgeable about it. White supremacy grows when people are ignorant or turn away from it. So I would recommend that people go to the ADL website and educate themselves on what's happening. It's important to know. And secondly, I think it's important that just in daily lives, as hard as it is for all of us, as hard as it is for me, we need to stand up on this issue. When people say things that are offensive, you know, when things happen in our world um, that, you know, are pushing toward racism or anti-Semitism, you know, it's it's incumbent on all of us um, to to put a stop to this because now now we see the kind of danger that letting things slide uh, can enable. For people who want to learn more about some of the research and work you've done uh, over the years, is there a place they can go to to learn more? Uh, yes, they could uh, look at my books. Um, the book on the 1920s, um, I have a, it's called Women of the Klan. Mm-hmm. And I have a book on uh, the later, more current uh, movement called Inside Organized Racism. Thanks again for, uh, you know, I think it was over a year ago uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, taking me to, to that spot, you know, um, yeah. for, for me, for me too, you know, working on this, often the stuff that we're responding to is from afar. And I think seeing it in person for me just recommits, uh, made me recommit myself to this work. And uh, you were part of that. So thank you so much. Yeah. And thanks for being uh, on this, uh, on this podcast. Thanks for all the work you and the ADL do. We all, we all appreciate it and we all depend on it. Wait a minute, you're aging me again. Back I to needing to color my hair anymore. I didn't say that though. You didn't, I didn't. <laughs> no, I'm kidding you. ADL is an anti-hate organization with a timeless mission to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment to all.
The ADL Center on Extremism is a foremost authority on extremism, terrorism, and all forms of hate. The center investigates and disrupts emerging threats online and on the ground, providing resources, expertise, and training that enable law enforcement officers, public officials, and community leaders, as well as internet and technology companies, to identify and counter emerging threats. For more information, visit ADL.org. American University's Center for University Excellence, Q, is proud to partner with ADL on this important podcast. Q strives to connect academic expertise with the public on areas of pressing import. This podcast is a project of the Center's Polarization and Extremism Research and Innovation Lab, Peril. To learn more, visit American.edu backslash P-E-R-I-L.